0: Thank you, Chancel Choir, for a beautiful anthem, those words from the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, and uh, just beautiful, timeless words, ancient words, and speaking of ancient words, we want to thank our youth choir. They were here early, they were here before the 830 service and stayed through that entire service and blessed us then and blessed us just now with their terrific music. It just amazes me to see that many young folks up here to hear them and to to be around them. They're terrific and we are blessed in this place and we're grateful. Our scripture lesson for today is from back in the Old Testament from a book that maybe we don't read every day. Maybe we haven't read in a long time. The book of Esther, an unusual story and we're going to take time to To tell that story or parts of that story in just a little bit but let's look at it or let's look at a few verses and then we'll go back and retell um, most of the story or an outline of the story anyway. The Old Testament, the book is the book of Esther. We're going to read some selected verses from chapter 7 and then uh, two or three verses from chapter 9. I would encourage you when you get a little time to read through the entire book to get the the sweep of this thing, the grand scope of it. It's it's an amazing story. But chapter 7 and verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, "'What is your petition, Queen Esther? "'It shall be granted you. "'And what is your request? "'Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled.' Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition. And the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Ahasuerus Said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has presumed to do this? Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And then, verse 9 and following. Then Harbono, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, The very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. And then in chapter 9, I want to read verses 20 through 22. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the fourteenth day of the month, Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same month year by year. As the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. This is the word of God for the people of God. Mm-hmm been frequently said by many biblical scholars that Esther is a remarkable book, but it has no religious significance. Frequently said, no religious significance. Maybe that's why folks don't preach from it or teach from it very often. Some interpreters have judged it even more harshly, saying with Heinrich Ewald that its story knows nothing of high and pure truths if that is so then there's little reason to explore the book isn't there little reason to ever study it in the bible study or preach about it or teach about it if that's the case we might as well turn our attention elsewhere to other parts of the bible martin luther did that he did not hesitate to say that he wished the book did not exist Got to remember that Martin Luther also said about the letter to James in the New Testament, it was an epistle of straw. And he had strong opinions about the book of Revelation as well. I think sometimes he could have benefited from my father's advice to put your brain in gear before you put your mouth in motion, but uh, we didn't come today to pick on Martin Luther. But Esther's in the canon, it's in the Old Testament canon, it's in the list of official books in the Old Testament, it's part of our scripture, it's part of the Bible. So we need to look at it from time to time. It's been accepted there and its presence is neither embarrassing nor puzzling. We don't need to pass over it hurriedly or apologize for it. If Esther is important for understanding the thoughts and the feelings of the Jewish people at this particular time in history, then it's important to us for an understanding of God's church and God's people at this time in history, at our time, you and me. In trying to understand and interpret Esther, we need to be a little bit familiar with a Jewish festival called Purim, P-U-R-I-M. Its significance, its history. Purim is a festival of deliverance. It's a time to celebrate in contrast to Hanukkah, which is another festival of deliverance you may be a little more familiar with. The achievement of religious freedom is celebrated. The preservation of Israel remembered. Purim commemorates the preservation of the Jewish people, particularly in Persia at this particular time. The book of Esther provides the story a colony of Jewish persons living in Persia threatened with destruction, but the massacre is averted. And we're going to talk about how that happened in just a moment and why that's important. The story of Esther's a symbol, just like Purim is a symbol of the deliverance of the Jews. The nation, the people are spared, and it's not an isolated event across the years when God has intervened on behalf of the children of Israel. The people have been persecuted time and time again. And God has loved them as God loves us through all difficulties and all manner of evil. Whatever the origin of Purim, and we can only guess, one meeting of the festival is very clear. It's a constant reminder year after year to the people. Though persecution may come in hard times and difficult times and brokenness and pain, the deliverance is certain. And there is nothing, nothing somber or mournful about this festival of Purim. It's a big time, it is a big party. People gather, and there's much eating. And drinking. And there are plays and there are masquerades and then just a huge kind of party. And an essential part of the celebration is the hanging of this character out of the story, Haman. They hang Haman in effigy as part of this celebration because they're remembering how he sought to destroy them. Some rabbis have taught that though all prophetic books may disappear or be forgotten the book of Esther will always be remembered Purim will always be observed and it still is it still is the last time I got close to it or experienced it in February late February early March of 1994 I was in Israel in the Holy Land it's the only time I've been and I would love to go back sometime but we were there at the time that this festival of Purim was being celebrated and, oh, my, it was like Halloween in this country. People were dressed up in costumes. They were hanging Haman in effigy in the lobby of our hotel. There was drinking and partying and loud, loud music. Now, our room was on the, maybe the seventh or eighth floor. It was the hotel. I thought, well, this party may go on all night, but it won't keep us awake. We won't be able to hear it up there. <laughs> I was wrong. felt like the floor was shaking and about 4:30 in the morning I finally fell asleep and the last thing that I remember hearing before I fell asleep was in Israel in the holy land long way from here Jerry Lee Lewis singing a whole lot of shaking going on <laughs> and there was and um, and I hear him on the radio now or exposed to some of his music every now and then. I think about the festival of Purim, and uh, recollection is not an altogether pleasant one. And, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis might be one reason that some folks avoid the book of Esther. I'm not sure. <laughs> the religiosity of the book may be debatable, and it is among scholars, but the intrigue of the book is not. At least I don't believe that it is. It's a really fascinating story, and there's some important morals here or lessons or observations, whatever you would like to call them. And I want to take a quick look at the story. We're just going to sort of run through it. So when you get time, read it Read it slowly and pay attention to what's going on there. It all happened in the days of Ahasuerus. He was sometimes referred to as King Xerxes I, which is an easier name to pronounce. And he was the ruler of the Persian Empire. For 180 days, he had given a party, a feast, a festival for all of his officials, for his ministers, for the leaders in his kingdom. 180-day party, that's half a year nearby. That's a long time, the party. It was followed by a lesser banquet of seven days for the less important officials and other folks in the city of Susa held in the courtyard of the king's garden at the palace, and did he ever put on the dome? No expense was spared. The wine flowed like a hurricane-ravaged river, and conjunction with this bash, Queen Vashti was giving a party inside the palace for the women of the palace. Now, on the seventh day of the banquet, when the king was... My translation of the scripture says Mary with wine. Some of the newer translations might say when the king was drunk as a skunk. <laughs> he was well beyond himself. And that's an interesting way to talk about it. And he was well beyond himself. And he sent his attendants to bring his wife, Queen Vashti, before him. He wanted to put her on display. She apparently was a beautiful woman and he wanted everyone to see that, all the party goers. But the queen to her ever-loving, everlasting credit, just said, no, that won't work for me. And Xerxes was ticked off big time. So he called in all the leaders and all the officials of his kingdom, all the wise talking heads, and they, they gathered around. And all these guys began to warn of Vashti's rebellion. They said, king, you've got to stop this. We're going to have to nip this in the bud, nip it, nip it, nip it. It's not a pretty picture. Word of this gets around to the women in the province, and we've got a problem. We don't even want to think about that, do we, your majesty? Uppity is contagious. So following the advice of his legal counsel, Xerxes issued a decree that every wife would give honor to her husband and that every man would be master in his own house. Furthermore, Vashti was cut off from ever coming before the king again, and another was chosen to take her place. Eventually, Xerxes cooled down, sobered up, his anger went south, and he agreed to a plan that would help him find another wife slash queen. And all the beautiful young women were gathered into the city of Susa. They were given a spa treatment, and then they were brought before the king one at a time. Now, there was a Jewish guy in the city of Susa. and His name was Mordecai. And Mordecai was raising a cousin who was also an orphan. And her name was Esther. And she was very bright, and she was very attractive. And when she came before the king, sure enough, he fell head over heels for Esther. Now, so far, Esther, acting on Mordecai, remember her cousinslash father's advice, had not told the king that she was Jewish. As an aside, and this is an aside that proves to be pretty significant later on. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate one day, and he overheard the hatching of a plot to assassinate the king. Mordecai told Queen Esther, she told the king, and after a short investigation, the king found the two guilty parties who were members of his staff, and he had them hanged immediately. Things were rocking along pretty good after this conspiracy had been thwarted. And the king had appointed a new chief of staff, a fellow named Haman. Everyone was supposed to bow down to Haman. He had that kind of ego. He had that kind of presence. When he walked down the street, folk were supposed to bow down. Everyone did, with the notable exception of Mordecai. Haman became more than irate when he realized Mordecai would not bow down. But Haman thought it beneath himself to lay his physical hands on Mordecai and choke him. So he hatched a plot, began to scheme for a way to destroy all of the Jewish folk who were there in the province. Haman set out to convince Xerxes that all the Jews in his empire's were trying to break God's laws. They were all lawbreakers that should not be tolerated. A decree should be issued, Haman said, for the destruction of all of these people. And Haman threw in a large bribe to boot. The king refused the bribe, but he authorized the Holocaust of all of these people in the region, all of these Jewish folk. So word was sent to all the king's officials And every corner of the province, you know how word of something that awful gets around. And on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews were to be annihilated, young and old, men and women, everyone, get rid of them. Mordecai got wind of what was being planned for his people, for God's people, and he cried and he wailed bitterly. Similar reactions were recorded all over the province Queen Esther eventually got in on the loop and Mordecai appealed to her to go to the king and do something. Stop this. You've got to do something. Appeal to the king on our behalf. And whether or not Mordecai realized that to approach the king in that day without permission was to risk one's life unless the king held out the golden scepter, which was a way of saying, welcome, come on in, we can talk. But if that didn't happen, someone could be put to death. So Esther asked all the Jews in the province to pray and to fast for three days on her behalf and she would approach the king. And she did. And he held out the golden scepter. He said, what can I do for you, my queen? He offered anything up to half the kingdom. Esther said, well, just throw a banquet in and have Haman come to this banquet. And they did so, and Haman left that little banquet in good spirits until on his way home he passed Mordecai again, and Mordecai still refused to bow down to Haman. And that was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back And Haman, on the advice of his wife, constructed a gallows in the backyard, if you can imagine such a thing, 50 cubits high. A cubit is about 18 inches long, 50 cubits high. That was a tall, tall, evil-looking thing. That same evening, we're told King Xerxes was reading in bed because he couldn't sleep. A lot of folks do that. A lot of folks still do that, even back in that day. And he read the account of how Mordecai had disrupted the attempt to assassinate the king. And he thought to himself, we've never honored him for that. So he called Haman. at Two o'clock in the morning, woke him up, got in touch with Haman. And he said, I want you to plan a party, a celebration. We're going to honor Mordecai, because he saved my life and because he's such a tremendous fella, and we're going to see that all these recognitions are publicly bestowed on him. He's going to be the hero of the day. Well, Haman was immoral and without integrity. But he wasn't dumb, he wasn't stupid, and he could begin to see the handwriting on the wall. Things were unfolding rapidly, and Esther interceded with King Xerxes on behalf of the Jewish people. And she exposed Haman as the deceitful and hateful rascal that he was. And before the afternoon was over... Haman was hanging from the gallows that he had constructed for his enemy, Mordecai. Haman was the reluctant guest of honor at his own necktie party. So Mordecai became the new chief of staff, and the decree went out that the destruction of all the Persian Jews was to be rescinded. There was great joy among the Jews in the land, and the festival of Purim was inaugurated to celebrate this deliverance of God's people. So are there any morals, any lessons, any observations to this story? There are a few. Allow me to mention them. You've probably come up with some on your own. And one of the ones that I've thought about, even between 8.30 and 11 o'clock, that was important, and I'll mention first the role of the strong women who were a part of this story. Vashti told the king, no, you didn't do that back in that day and time. Told him no. And then Esther put her life on the line for her people. And so stories of strong and faithful women are all through Scripture. And sometimes we overlook them or we don't look at them as carefully. After that, I need to mention that the Persian king is mentioned 190 times in the book of Esther. And the Lord God of Israel is mentioned zero times. That's interesting, isn't it? But don't you believe, I believe, that God is at work in this story, even though God's name is never mentioned throughout the story, God's very much at work here. God's got things going on. God may not be center stage. But God is, as one writer has said, standing in the wings, following the drama, and arranging for a successful resolution of the play. If God's people are spared, if they are saved, if they are delivered, then what else but the hand of God would bring that about? And perhaps for me... The major point of this story, one of the observations we need to hang on to is that God can be at work in our world and in our families and in our church and in our hearts even when we're not aware of it, even when God's name is not being called. God's still making things happen for the good of his people. Another thing when we scheme to entrap our, our enemies we most often get caught in a trap of our own making. Haman set out to entrap Mordecai, but Haman was the one who ended up swinging from the gallows that he had constructed for his enemy. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. A trap of our own making designed with someone else in mind, is often the most difficult trap to escape. The bitterness, the hatred, the envy that will lead us to seek the destruction of another will most often end up destroying us. And then in Esther 4.14, Mordecai is appealing to Esther to help spare her people. And he says these words to Esther. These words sort of were the tagline of this whole story. These are words you've heard so many times before. He said to Esther, who knows? Perhaps you have come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. When we consider our place and our situations in life, we sometimes wonder, <laughs> we sometimes ask ourselves, what am I doing here? Maybe we've come to that point in our lives for just such a time as this. Was it any accident that Esther had the king's ear at a time when the life of God's people was on the line? In closing now, I want us to think about church. I want us to think about God's church around the world and our United Methodist Church at this time and the Noonan First United Methodist Church. Perhaps, just perhaps, God has brought all of us together in a place like this for just such a time as this. Maybe, 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 the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, is up to some new things among us, moving among us, and any time the Spirit of God begins to move among us, there is bound to be a whole lot of shaking going on. So we've got a couple of choices, as I said. We can stay in our room, and we pull our pillow up over our head and try to drown out the music. Or we can get up, and we can put on our glad rags, and we join the party perhaps you and I have come to the kingdom for just such a time as this amen